Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore the essential role design plays in our everyday lives and how, if harnessed correctly, has the power to positively transform the way that we live, design better businesses and sustainable solutions for the planet. We speak to creative entrepreneurs around the world about how they inspire their ideas to life and how they make it all work and the role design plays in their lives. I'm your host, founder of Frost Collective and author of Design Your Life, Vince Frost. At Frost Collective, our specialist place and environments teams work globally with architects, developers, cities, corporations, and governments, delivering successful human-centered solutions across place visioning, property branding, and strategic wayfinding and signage. To find out more, head to frostcollective.com.au. Welcome to the latest episode of Design Your Life from Lego to Skyscrapers. Today I catch up with the city-based architect Angelo Candelepas. Angelo's positive and philosophical approach to architecture is really evident in his award-winning projects, including Punchbowl Mosque and AHL headquarters, to name a few. Passionate about design and its power to change the world, tune in as he discusses his approach to architecture, life, and how mentors have played a critical role in shaping his career. Hey, Angelo, welcome to Design Your Life. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? Oh, it's really good. Thank you. Um, obviously, the, the pandemic is um, start up again here in Sydney. So we're both in two different places. I'm in uh, Avalon. Whereabouts are you? I'm in the city, Sussex Street. Okay, cool. We were put in touch by the brilliant William Smart, uh, who we did a podcast with a couple of weeks ago, which is really cool. How do you know each other? Well, I, I think it's an interesting thing to ask because the truth is we don't know each other other than through the work and through uh, the profession of architecture. Uh, I think he's a friend in that regard. Yeah, no, no, he, he was, yeah, talks very highly of, of you and your work. I would, of his work as well. Um, it's, it's odd that we've never connected earlier and I've been um, seeing your amazing work around city and always wondered who was behind it. Um, even near our house in Ranwick and uh, Pindari uh, in uh, Wentworth Avenue. Wentworth Street, I think it's called, isn't it? Wentworth Avenue, yeah. Yeah. Danga and beautiful. King. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. Now I know who did it. Well, it's funny you say that because um, no one really knows who did it. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. not even you. Oh, was it a mixture? Well, no, the truth is that it's kind of magic. Um, what happens is um, in any real uh, work of art, no one really knows who the author is because it just happens, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's funny when you when you see a building such as that kind of amongst, you know, other homes and I guess uh, universities and stuff around that area, parks, it's just quite a nice surprise when you when you when you stumble across it for the first time. I think it's an interesting project because I did it when I was very young and it was the very first project that I did after a long period of just doing competitions and it was when I had decided that I just didn't want to do competitions anymore because um, that was so so taxing. Um, but the problem was that it became boring being at the office 24 hours a day and I needed to kind of also start to build buildings and this wonderful client called Afif Gaha, who was this um, very intelligent man um, and basically a philosopher, 
and he bought the site off the government, uh, which was the university. And together we built this wonderful thing. Um, and really it was a combination of his desire to do a kind of final project in his life in which he could live, but also um, demonstrative of uh, a will to offer something back to the community that he thought was necessary. He's now deceased, which is very sad for me because I loved him a lot. And it, and it is a, wow, what a, what a legacy that would be then from his per- perspective. Well, well it's, it's not my legacy, yeah, it's yeah. his. That's really cool to, to, to create that create that magic spot just that for people to live and enjoy for year, for years to come. Do you know, I designed that in 2000, we started, and that's 21 years ago. I was very young. I would have been 31, too. And it took um, maybe eight years to build um, or seven years to build. I was there very often and what it's very interesting because I was reflecting recently in a discussion I had with a very important architect and this is not an advertisement, this is just me saying to you that I'm doing a symposium later on in the year. Oh, cool. And I've invited a number of people, Pritzker Prize winners like Alvaro Caesar and Doshi and Grafton and RCR. But, but what's interesting um, is that Doshi said to me um, something about um, clients and about um, these subject areas that we're talking. And uh, I, I just look at and reflect upon what we did in the firm as younger architects and how we're working today. And all of it has this very interesting passage um, through life. And every part of it becomes uh, some form of recognition of what intelligence one had at that time and what has been able to be built upon, I think is very good. Ah, great foundation for your firm today. Well, I think so. I think so. Your background is Greek, born and raised in Sydney, uh, on building sites with your dad as a, as, as a builder. Uh, is that where your love for architecture was born? I don't know if I have a love for architecture. <laughs> <laughs> oh jeez here we go I don't know yes um, where it was born but, well things like love I don't believe are born anyway um, I think they have they are there um, actually and you discover them so it's interesting um, it's like discovering that you love someone um, or a person you discover that you have an affection for something and that's how I see it so I I don't know if it ever wasn't there, um, actually. I, I think I always was interested in things that engaged with the world, and architecture engages with the world in such a beautiful way. It engages with everything, with art, with history, with science, with mathematics, with physics, with astronomy, with the world, with people, society, psychology. And music, I understand you play the piano, right? Yeah, I do. Um, and music, well, that's like architecture, isn't it? Yeah. Um, in a sense, because it requires an enormous amount of technical skill that is very boring to many people. Um, many people like the idea of playing the piano, very few actually do it. Um, 
And I suppose the reason for that is because it requires skill and effort. We had a couple, we had a chat a couple of weeks back and some of the points you raised really resonated with me. And I'd love you to talk a bit more about your approach to design and the power that the architecture has to change the world. I can't remember exactly what we discussed. It was a kind of flowing discussion from my recollection. But what is interesting is that uh, you use the word power and certain things, in fact, uh, sit under the surface in society and people don't recognise them as being able to transform society. And uh, one such thing is um, the acts of politicians. Uh, we are starting to recognise, in fact, that the inaction is just as bad as the action um, in some regards, or just as good um, as the case might be. But when it comes to architecture, most people don't think that uh, the streets are considered or parks are considered or something has been put in place by way of design. Oftentimes people will say that's bad design or that's no design. But from my point of view, if something isn't in fact resonating beautifully uh, and encouraging people to be optimistic, um, then it's just bad design. There is no purpose um, in creating streets that are pessimistic is, is there. So um, we oftentimes find ourselves in this uh, arrangement where we're looking at um, really poor design in our cities and wondering how it got there. But I, I think it starts at the hand of very uninformed designers that think that they don't matter and uh, their one effort in a building, whether it's a block of flats or whether it's something is a public building, is not really going to change the world. But I don't agree. I think buildings do change the world and I think they have power to enable optimism in society. And I'll give you an example. If you were put in a, a beautiful courtyard uh, with sunlight coming in, streaming in, and it was a beautiful day, and you were under some sort of shelter and you could read a book and there were birds, um, that is, in a sense, an optimistic environment because it gives you a sense of um, connection with nature but also there's containment and control in the visual domain and it gives you a sense of quietness uh, and repose. Uh, if you are, however, in the alternative, uh, sitting in a room which is one metre by one metre or standing in a room because you can't sit in a room that's one metre by one metre and two metres tall and it's black with no window, the only thing you can think about is death and wanting to... Um, remove yourself from that environment because it's such a toxic environment for the psychology. And yet, and yet that's a designed environment. That's a thing that someone has put together for someone to be in. It's a bit like the difference between Venice and very poorly designed streets of Sydney. We flock to Venice. We flock to Italy. We flock to Paris and think that that's only good for holidays. Um, and the truth is that these cities are designed in many regards singularly designed in very short periods of time and built over those short periods of time relatively. And a long, long time ago too. Well, not that long ago. Paris wasn't built that long ago. I mean, it would have been built maybe 
uh, 50 or 60 or 100 years prior to Sydney. So I, I don't I don't agree with you. I think it okay. most most of the cities are the consequence of the industrial revolution. Prior to that, cities weren't really populated as they are today. People didn't flock to cities. There wasn't industry as there is today. And the consequence of that was mostly people lived in rural environments and then you had towns, but the whole of Europe was constructed um, with, uh, you know, um, learn-as-you-go sort of attitude uh, to things like fire and to things like safety and transport and movement. And uh, we forget that that's relatively recent, uh, you know, with the advent of trams, with the advent of um, fire engines <laughs> and the things that enable us to be safe, hospitals, schools. Um, and so we, we forget that. And, and all we're looking at today is um, buildings that are of a certain way because of the rapacious nature of development and how things are done um, through the uh, efforts of individuals rather than through uh, what would be better uh, benevolent gover- governance or government. So what is it that, that places like Venice, Paris, etc., what, what is it they got right that we may not have got so right here design i think i think consistency i think there's um there's also another thing that's happened and that is that there's been an increase in people seeking in a false way individualism uh, and that is reflected in uh the efforts of architects who try very hard to not work within uh the constructs of a street or an environment that is planned for them and try very hard to, I don't know, perhaps become famous in their individual work. And, and also the sense of probity and um, corruption has caused for a lot of um, competitions to be held for the work of architecture. And competitions are really the realm of sensationalising things unnecessarily for the benefit of the architect winning I guess there's, there's competitions and there's also technology has influenced the opportunity to do things more creatively or more distinctive. Has it? I don't think so. I think technology has uh, created a very thin... It's a bit like reading a book. Um, let me just explain to you my view on this. But um, It's a bit like reading a book. Do you, do you take the effort to walk to the library and sit and look at what books you might want to look at. Um, and that investment causes you to be a bit more ju- judicial, careful with what you pick up. <laughs> um, or do you just look at one lines on Pinterest of pictures that don't, um, don't say much more than, more than what the surface gives you in the photograph? So I wonder if with all the advent of technology and the abundance of information, if we actually have very little as a result. And I wonder if it's a bit like friends too. If you have many, many friends, you don't get invited to anyone's birthday. <laughs> thank, you know what I mean, God. don't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, if you have a thousand friends, yeah. then you don't have any really. That's true. Well, I was just thinking going back to Venice um, and we worked on the Venice Biennale in 2008, which was amazing to spend some time there. But the, the buildings there are of a time, right? They're, they were of a period and of... Um, 
the technology, I want to know how much of the technology, the building technology that was available at that time influenced the design of those spaces and places. Well, it always does. I mean, when you look at the ancient buildings, the spans between the columns um, of marble could be less uh, than timber, could be less than steel, could be less than concrete. And so openings and proportions become beholden to what is available in technology. And today, um, the concept of creating a building is um, very different to what it was uh, even 100 years ago with uh, basic uh, basic uh, elements of comfort, such as um, climatisation internally and um, windows. Um, and so the concept of creating a building today has a lot of options, whereas Previously, it didn't. And I would say perhaps the difference is that, and this is being rectified, but the difference um, in Venice is that buildings needed to have walls, which sounds like a strange thing to say, but if you have walls and you have to puncture windows through those walls and they are load-bearing, then it creates a certain circumstance for one to develop the skills of an architect. Uh, It's uh, the circumstance of penetration or uh, creating something that in fact has to do with proportion, the human condition, looking out, the love of the joint and materials at the corners, um, an understanding of how to enter, uh, the idea of how to adorn these things is always evident in the older buildings. Whereas today, uh, the sense of um, the sense of creating uh, a building that has weight, comes with money and what we need to do is to try and always persuade people to uh, spend more money on their buildings um, than they're willing to do and as a consequence provide something which is uh, more lasting. Uh, I think that's the task of the architect. Many architects think that the role of the architect has to do with um, persuading people that they can save the building money. Um, That's actually not the role of the architect. Uh, the role of the architect, in my opinion, has something to do with offering something that isn't going to be uh, demolished in 20 years and, and as a consequence, requires to be built in a way which uh, has details and uh, is uh, concentrating on um, or toward an effort for longevity. And this is not in the minds of many practitioners these days. I think it should be. One of the lines you mentioned the other day when we spoke was oftentimes authenticity in design exists at the start but is seen to be eroded by the very culture that seeks it in the creation of architecture in our cities. Can you talk to me a bit more about that? Well, it, it's, it's easy to be... It's a bit like life itself. It's easy to be a genius at 24, isn't it? But at 54, it's not. Um, and what happens in life is one is affected by everyone that touches one as one goes through. It's the same in architecture. When you start the process, uh, there's something authentic about an originating idea that has within it uh, the naivety of not knowing what's required entirely. People, the, the better the better the architect, the more the people are interested in 
intervening in a sense. And the more important the location of the project, the more people feel it's their obligation to impart their uh, opinions about what to do. And the consequence of that is that very large projects have meetings <laughs> and meetings are places where people um, all uh, say they're collaborating, but really they're not. What, what, what people are doing is uh, giving their opinion about something oftentimes um, that isn't as, as informed as it should be. And um, it becomes a kind of personal desire around the room to get what people are seeking um, as individuals. And then if the architect isn't adept at uh, collating that, which I think is very important, collation of that um, the series of discrete opinions, desires, requirements, um, and uh, all the things that come together to form a brief, um, if the architect isn't able to create a circumstance where that can be prioritised in the correct format, um, you get very poor outcomes. And I think the consequence of many buildings is this, that um, if you have a 200 300 $400 million building, let's just go through the process. <laughs> the first thing is that you have to persuade the client to do certain things. The next thing is you have to persuade the authorities, and that may be a significant number of people in significant number of agencies. The next thing is that you have to persuade those that persuade the authorities, which are neighbours, the people that object, um, ministers of government, etc. The next thing you need to do is then persuade someone to build the thing that you're creating through, if that's all okay, through the authorities process, through a budget constraint through a fiscal constraint, through a monetizing exercise, as they put it, um, through um, a contractual arrangement uh, that is with a builder and uh, with drawings that come out of a large office such as ours uh, that uh, are created by a significant number of people that are very skilled nonetheless but also um, have to communicate precisely what is required from the skirting to the edge detail to the handle on the door and then that has to be agreed by the builder um, who is building it uh, in a sum of money that is finite. And then they have to start. And I don't envy these poor builders who have to start building buildings, but they don't end the way they start. And so through that process, what one starts to recognise is that there are many opportunities for uh, uh, an initial idea to be inauthenticated um, or unauthenticated or whatever the word might be um, through razor blade cuts all the way through um, <laughs> and one never knows which one will in fact kill the project. But it's been my aim to uh, always have a capacity to stand back and be very careful about um, what is important and what isn't. And not everything's important. So. It's very important to be able to be wise enough to know that things um, that clients want that, um, that you may initially not have wanted, um, you can embrace. How often do you have that ideal brief? Never. <laughs> so part of the brief is to navigate the brief or to enhance it. Well, let's face it. I mean, the brief, if the brief is an ideal brief, it's what's an ideal brief? An ideal brief is total engagement and immersion with the client. 
um, if we're talking about Pintari, um, they were daily meetings and we would have hours and hours and hours. And in a sense, it's the theatre of um, what we do has something to do with a total immersion into the mind of the client. Um, and then um, removal uh, of oneself from that immersion into a, a world of one's own at what I would what I have as a drawing board. Many people have computers. I don't know how on earth people can draw anything on the computer because the mind doesn't work that way, the way that I've discovered. Uh, I think the mind works with the body, not um, a keyboard. Uh, so uh, for me, uh, I, yeah, well, I just, don't, I just don't know how you can create good work um, by not drawing it with your body. The nervous system is very interesting. It, if you unraveled it, you could actually, for every person, uh, there would be enough nervous um, n- nerves that would go from here to the moon. That's for every person. That means that your brain, which is connected to every single one of those nerves that touches your toes to your head, um, in fact, is your body. So as you draw, your brain is working uh, in a thinking and unthinking way. And uh, there is the importance in architecture, as there is in music, as there is in art, of the anecdotal, the subconscious. And I don't know how that can be achieved um, on a keyboard. Um, I think the keyboard is a very rudimentary, almost primitive um, uh, way of communicating. And, and for instance, I'll give you an example. If you were to write a letter, um, your handwriting, the speed with which you wrote it, um, the way that it peters out at the end or the way that it is in, more intentioned uh, by not petering out in the end is, in fact, another form of communication. It's another consciousness, um, whereas the sort of um, dry um, uh, uh, note uh, of a typewriter isn't that. And it used to be, in a sense, because sometimes you could press the key harder um, and uh, there would be something more to be said about those moments in uh, the typewritten form. But but we have a complete absence of it in the computer. I mean, you know, this sense of uh, communicating um, without even speaking to each other um, uh, through an email is in many regards evil. I feel bad now that we're not sitting down face to face. Well, you should. <laughs> Sorry, Angelo. I pro- apologize. There's nothing better than the intimate engagement of people. And the sense of doing this on Zoom is also something that is lost to me because I think we end up, even over the telephone, there's more imagination. Yeah. Um, we, we end up, what we're seeing on any screen is something in two dimensions and it's deceiving us because it's telling us that we're looking at something that's three-dimensional, but it's not. It's a, it's a two-dimensional thing and the consequence of that communication is that it is a one-dimensional communication because we don't, in fact, have that important spiritual and emotional dimension that comes with being together. Well, I think you that's incredible uh, what you just said, and it resonates with me so much. And it, it's kind of, you know, we it's a fact that we've become so focused on technology. We're so far removed from the earth, from the world, the truth, through nature, from nature. Thankfully, architects like you are actually understand the importance of that and how we, you know, designing for our better 
uh, well-being, Gen generally, not just like, you know, modern and technology-driven uh, places, but more stuff, places that you actually feel comfort, you feel at one. Well, I think you need to feel more than comfort. It's very interesting to say that your, your observation of our work is this, but I'm always very focused at uh, offering something that affects people in a positive way, um, that in fact they can't walk past. It's a bit like a great poem. Uh, when you have a great poem, it makes an observation of the world that you knew uh, sat latent in your understandings of the world, but you hadn't had the time to think about it. And architecture can do that. They can, uh, architects can actually produce work that makes one walk past the street and say, yes, I get that. I understand that. And there's something in that that's otherworldly because it gives me that connection with universal ideas, um, as does poetry. Uh, and we can't do that as architects unless we're observing the human condition and understanding it and um, dealing with it in a way which uh, we know through our own experience can affect people's consciousness and subconsciousness. And so in a sense, what we're trying to do is get under the skin of people uh, with things that are beautiful uh, in a way that they hadn't understand, understood before. Um, but it's been, it's been the role of every period in history to readjust and realign our sense of the aesthetic um, and I suppose with us disconnecting ourselves further and further away from nature and the natural world and real things, we fall into this deceit of not needing to have beauty, which I think is it's evil, actually. Do, do, do you think, um, I mean, it kind of, kind of popped into my head, was like, are you, ever, are you then ever wrong? Like, do you know, as an architect, how to design? I mean, of course, you do, how to design a better place, a better environment. Um, but do you ever get it wrong? Do you ever get it right for you and maybe not right for, you know, the masses? No. Um, you, you're always wrong until you're right. Um, but um, <laughs> so you're wrong for most of it. And um, the aim is to never get it wrong for the masses. The aim isn't to please architects. The aim isn't to sort of make people in our profession interested in the work. In fact, oftentimes I worry if they are because I think we can, as a profession, become disengaged with the world. Um, I think what we need to do is uh, offer solutions that everybody understands and they're understood at every level. I think the, if we have, if we go back to music, I think it's interesting to see that um, recently, uh, there was a vote on the ABC on people's favourite music, and overwhelmingly, uh, people voted for Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Um, and they do it every year, and it's the same thing every year. And the Ode to Joy somehow resonates. Somehow, we thank God that um, he came, um, Beethoven came into the world and gave us that piece of music, actually. Um, and why is that? Why is that we all do that? And all those very foolish people that say design um, is uh, subjective, 
are those that don't know anything about design and haven't thought about it actually. Uh, design isn't subjective. Design is objective if it actually is any good. Everybody acknowledges good design. Everybody acknowledges a good piece of music. Everybody acknowledges a good piece of art. And those that don't get it, that's fine. But they need to just look at what people are saying is good and learn it. it it's a bit, aesthetics is something learned. It's a bit like common sense. We have, or language, we have the capacity to learn it. But those that don't wish to learn it end up becoming mute and um, they shouldn't be heard. But those that learn it and have a beautiful grasp of it, like those that understand language beautifully, we know all those people that are able to uh, articulate things in a beautiful way, like T.S. Eliot or um, any poet, really. Um, those people are the people that we laud. Um, we don't laud the person that can't string a sentence together. Why would we do it in architecture? It's the same thing. We laud those people that understand aesthetics. We don't say it doesn't exist, because that's nonsense. It's all about aesthetics. It's all about all the senses. Aesthetics is about smell, taste, sound, sight, touch. It's about everything. And architecture deals with those things. I totally agree with that. You ha I bought your book recently, in fact, last week. At, oh, did um, you? Yeah. Buildings and Projects, uh, published by Park Books um, from Zurich. Yeah. Uh, at my local bookstore called Bocaccino, which I love in Avalon. Um, it's a brilliant book. I haven't read it in any detail yet, so I apologize, but I will this weekend. Um, how did it come about? Because I, I was surprised. Was, I thought, well, okay, that must be an Australian publisher, but no, it was, it was published out of Zurich. And it's, it's, again, it's so cool to see that your reach um, in the world as well. I don't know how that came about. Um, I have, the funniest thing is I have friends in, in all places um, and um, Zurich was the place that invited me to do a book, which was bizarre. And, and all these people are wonderful. You know, the, there are some people in the world whose critique and um, assertions in architecture are so incredibly acute that uh, you really want to participate in their um, orbit. <laughs> um, and so I, I've been trying to, I've been trying to speak to those sorts of people all my life. And but uh, uh, Thomas Kramer invited me to do a, a book um, out of Zurich. Uh, at the time, I think he was looking to board publishing an Australian architect. Um, there's another one that's um, that's also going to be published out of Portugal now. Um, and they too, they just um, they look at the work that we're doing uh, and uh, finding it interesting to publish. It has a particular way of reading the world, which I think is. Um, welcome by me uh, as an observation because it means that um, people are interested in the work in a universal way. It's not just Australians. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely. I mean, you wouldn't even know it's out of Australia, like if you look at it, which is, I guess, probably um, a good. It's a good thing, I think. Um, it's maybe, also maybe it's, maybe it's not a good thing. I don't know. I, <laughs> I think it is. Uh, um, and, it's, and whoever designed it did a good job too and uh, used my favorite font, Accidents Grotesque. Well, that's Bruno Magrath, um, and he is so cool. Um, I'm going to try and get another book uh, written by um, them. There's another phase of our work now that's very different to this earlier phase. And um, where uh, I want to publish, I, I find that um, 
these things uh, are much more rewarding than awards um, in, in, in Australia because um, there's something to be said about recording one's work in this way. And I think it's interesting because it's not the work itself, but it gives you an insight to the work. Um, they, uh, Alberto Campobeza wrote the introduction. He's from Spain, and he just did it spontaneously. He just wrote this beautiful essay about our work one day, um, which I thought was very nice. God, that must, be, that must feel good. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> He's a really good friend. Um, because I invited him and we spent a lot of time together, invited him to Australia, and he sent me this book, which is um, the uh, Marco uh, Aurelio. It's Meditation Pensieri, that's the Latin, but very few people know that um, Marcus Aurelius was, in fact, um, writing meditations in Greek, and so uh, his, uh, Alberto Campobeza, has sent me the original version in Greek because he knows I can read it. Oh. And he's very... Yeah, but I bet you're enjoying that or are you about to enjoy that? Well, no, I've, I've read most of it. Um, but what I do enjoy is reading the Italian. See, it's not Latin. It's Italian, the translation. So it's a very different um, very different thing to Latin. And so typical of Alberto Camarbeza to be philosophical like that. So he'll invite you to his birthday, right? Ah, uh, maybe. <laughs> well, we, we're in COVID lockdown, so yeah. we have to just when speak you can, more. when yeah. you can. Um, let's just talk about. Uh, let's still talk about in terms of a lot of significant culture, cultural projects you worked on um, with religious roots, like the Hellenic Club, the Greek Orthodox Orthodox Cathedral on Cleveland Street, and Punchbowl uh, Mosque. How do you empathetically design a new solution? a site whilst respecting and acknowledging its past life and use? I don't think of it that way. I don't believe in a past life as much as I understand the present life. And what's very interesting is that we as architects see history always as a consequence of the present. So we're not historians. Um, I find historian, I thought, you know, the first historian I read was uh, Thucydides, I mean, they say Herodotus, but it's not, it's Thucydides, um, uh, Peloponnesian Wars. It's so boring, isn't it? It's so dry. He tries very hard to make it sound as though it's all factual, but we know that he's making it up as he goes. Um, he was there and not there. And then, you know, Winston Churchill um, wrote, um, wrote uh, the history of World War II, um, which is so dry. And Architects don't see history as a continuum in that way. Architects see history as a series of acts that are both discrete and in continuum. And um, when you walk onto a site, like the Cathedral of the Annunciation in Redfern, where it's a blackened church, or, or we're doing some work against the St Mary's Cathedral as well, we don't see it as an historical uh, building. Um, we see it is a moment where something very creative was made. And um, we see it at its, at its inception, uh, a transformative building for its time. And so what I do is I imagine if I'm working next to the cathedral for the Annunciation, as I said to our beautiful Archbishop one day, I said, it kind of needs a brother. Um, it needs something that uh, is, or a grandson, 
something that is different, sometimes a little bit robust, sometimes a little bit difficult to the old lady or to the old man, but something that gives it life. Uh, otherwise, all you're doing is creating stillborn artifacts that are dead but beautiful next to uh, these buildings. And these buildings have life. They're just old. They have life. And it's like going to your grandparents and wanting to know what they were like when they were young. But also not treating them with kid gloves, just be dealing with them as people, dealing with them in reality. Um, otherwise, all you're doing is kind of unduly revering things that probably would be better off themselves being treated robustly. And they would love, that. grandparents love rolling in the park, don't they? Mm. They don't want to be respected all the time. They want to be respected, of course, and they should be. They shouldn't be respected, but they should be treated robustly like adults. And that's how, that's how I see our work against these old buildings. Um, and the culture also has to be considered. Tradition is only tradition if it changes. I don't believe in tradition that stays the same. How did your approach in designing the mosque, you know, coming from a, a Greek Orthodox upbringing, how did that influence that outcome? Well, I really designed a Greek Orthodox church, didn't I? Um, and <laughs> it's a bit like uh, they understand this. Ah. Um, they come from the tradition that it's the same faith, more or less, um, that's moved into a different domain with Muhammad. But uh, the truth of it is, it's the same. It's the same heritage, and many mosques have just appropriated. Um, we call them Greek Orthodox churches, but the truth is that they were part of the Roman Empire. Hagia Sophia is the most prominent example, I would imagine, but I think um, they, they were appropriated places of worship that were venerated and made into mosques later, but also um, there are issues of climate here, climate here in Australia, Australia. But the most important thing for me is the sense of the spiritual in these buildings and the sense of creating something that has to do with holding people in a, in a vessel um, and enabling those people to remove the sense of doubt that we all have about the spirit, the human spirit. And once one enters a building that has accomplished this, one knows it, um, it's very important to recognise it in cathedrals as you walk in uh, those enormous cathedrals um, of the Gothic order of architecture or the Gothic period of architecture are describing to us something about ourselves and how we can move, be moved by architectural space um, and how we can sense of doubt we have with the world erased and there's then, then this presence of understanding our own spirituality in, in that context. I think architecture can do this uh, and, and it, it, it should do it in the home but it certainly should do it in buildings of faith. I think it's quite interesting in, in our chat previously you mentioned you had no fear you said I have no fear of simplicity and it's quite interesting looking at the the mosque and the cathedral and, and seeing how you approach that you've reduced the detail but it still feels like a mosque you know how, how do you how do you navigate that how do you know how much how simple to make it you don't really ever know how simple to make it but you know when to stop and it's enough. I don't know the answer to that question, other than to say that it's very bad to have unnecessary things. 
let me let me put it to you in the way that I like to think about it. When we go and see ruins in the ancient towns of Greece or of Italy, we can see in them things that still connect with us. So we can see in them where people would walk in rooms, where they would bathe, where they would do things. But we can also see that the architecture had a language about itself and that that language is still understood by us today. So we understand that um, there is a place where one can have a bedroom that makes sense. There is a place where one can have a living room or a courtyard. Every ancient civilization had buildings with courtyards from China to Japan to Greece to Rome. And the reason for that is because there, there's a sense of containment and control of one's environment within nature. And that's a rather beautiful thing. So when we look at this question of how simple it can be, we have to ask ourselves, what is it that we're doing that is not necessary, that in 2,000 years people will not understand? And what is it that will be that in 2,000 years people will understand? And in the mosque, for instance, there is this sense that I'm speaking to people 2,000 years from now and I'm saying to them, this is how we see space in Australia for worship. And it's important that we give this message to most generations in the future. Otherwise, we have nothing to offer them. That's how I see to reduce things down to. I imagine them as rules. Well, that's a fantastic uh, response to that. Um, I was just going to ask you about how do you balance your private life and your work life? Well, I don't. Okay, good. I like that. I don't like people that balance their lives. It's one life, right? Well, what, I mean, what, is, what, is, what is balancing your life? Do you have a seesaw and then on one side you, um, you put uh, work, on the other side you put um, uh, home life and then you have some sort of schizophrenic environment where nothing is blended? Um, do you compartmentalise everything um, such that uh, you don't ever uh, see the world as one? Um, is that it, it's a very Darwinian, it's a very Victorian idea to go home and leave home in your office or workplace. It's a very Darwinian idea. It's very old-fashioned. I think, I think, I think it, it, it also, in the world of technology, it also is deceitful if you think you can do that and actually have a fulfilled life. A lot of people want to do that. Um, the truth is that your home should affect your work and your work should affect your home. Otherwise, you're not a whole person. I mean, home is so important to us, isn't it? Of course. It's, it's where life happens. So things become real at the dinner table, don't they? Um, you, you don't, whilst at work, people in my office are always very respectful of what I say and do. It's very refreshing to go home and my daughter to say something like, oh, Dad, you're just a spaz or what are you doing? Um, <laughs> that's just wrong. That's just wrong. Yeah. And it's, it's a reassuring thing to have that critique at the most 
rudimentary <laughs> of levels. You know, I don't, you don't you don't really want your daughter to be dishonest with you. You want to communicate, yeah. and then that makes it real, doesn't it, Vince? I mean, I I don't I don't think it's it's a real thing to pretend that um, that you're perfect. No, and by, and by all means, this this whole podcast is about human beings kind of trying to make it work, trying to do the best, have the best life possible. And we're all trying to find our way. It's pretty, look, life can be pretty shitty, can't it? Life can be really kind of um, poor. And so it's important to understand this, that the way you spend your day is the way you spend your life. And so people seek to have extraordinary lives and have very ordinary days. I, I try and make it a little bit different. I try and have extraordinary days and an ordinary life <laughs> um, because in the end, you just end up making, you have to wake up in the morning and want to have a good day, don't you? Yeah. Optimism. And you have to, you, you actually also have to make it happen. You have to, in fact, decide that you're going to have a good day. Well, it sounds like you're, you've designed your life. I mean, your life's deliberate, right? There's an element of it that is designed, but most of it isn't. Most of it is, I. what did I design? Did I design when I was born? Which period I was in? Did I design that I have to work to make a living? Did I design that I have to be here to have this interview? Um, all of this is not my design. So within the fractions of that, I engage in the design process. And it's similar uh, for actual buildings. I, don't, I didn't design the circumstances of how we construct buildings in Australia. Many people say to me, aren't you lucky that you have the best clients? Aren't you lucky that you get what you want? Um, you must be very, very difficult to work with. Um, I think that's just people that haven't got the kind of thinking that I do about process um, and aren't uh, posed, uh, posing these sorts of ideas. Um, that I um, pose to you, that in fact you do have to think about those things you can control and design them well, and you have to know the things you can't control. And overwhelmingly, you can't control many things. Have you had mentors throughout your life, and have they helped you along your way? Of course. There are many types of mentors. There are the dead mentors and then the, the alive mentors. The dead mentors are people, for me, that are poets, composers of music, artists and architects that have changed the world. And I've developed a kind of affection for them. They're my friends. Um, and I often say, I hope they're not rolling in their grave thinking about what I'm doing. And then there's the live mentors, which are our connection to those people in some respects. And if I talk about Doshi earlier, he had his wonderful relationships with Louis Kahn and Le Corbusier, and Rick Leplastrier has his wonderful relationships with, um, with Utsun and uh, Kenzo Tange. But in my um, life, I've had Carl Madigan, the author of the National Gallery, Okay. And now Glenn Murphy. Is he a mentor? Now, they too wouldn't accept the term mentor <laughs> because 
they always referred to me as Glinda's as an equal, you know, an equal, which is really, really not right, is it? I mean, it's not true. But I let them continue that only because I don't know how to have an argument with them and I want to benefit from their incredible wisdom. Cole has died, um, but he's still a mentor. I go down to the National Gallery. And, um, in fact, more recently, um, I have to say, he's become a closer friend. This affection doesn't lapse with one's death. And it is my hope that um, it's possible for the entirety of my life to maintain friendships and regard for those people that whose language, whose communication through their artistic endeavour resonates with me. And I guess the same thing would be People look up to you for your art- artistic endeavour and and uh, guidance. I haven't seen that yet, <laughs> but, <laughs> but maybe maybe you're right. I don't know. People people could do that, and I'd be open to it. Well, look, Angelo, it's been such a a pleasure and an honour to to catch up with you today, and I thank you for your time. And I really want to meet you and have a cup of tea in person uh, in the future. Well, Vince, I too. And uh, the reality for me is that um, these discussions offer me an opportunity to think about myself and in the busyness of a day um, that isn't able to happen often. And so I appreciate you uh, coming into my office through the television and talking talking to me in this one-dimensional way. And one day I hope too that we can have a coffee together and perhaps even work together. I am doing a sign today for a church, yes, and um, I'm using uh, the font that Sigurd Leverance has created for his um, church, and I think it's the most beautiful font, and I might send you a page that shows it. I would love to see that. It's very beautiful. Wow. So here's a mentor. <laughs> Cool. Why not? Thank Why not? Why not? Uh, cool. Angelo, thank you so much for today. Thank you. We'll catch up. Thank you. Okay. See you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life. If you'd like to find out more about how you can design your life, head to the website at designyourlife.com.au. If you found this episode inspiring, please don't forget to review and subscribe. If you have any ideas or like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at frostcollective.com.au.